0: Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich and Associates, since 1997, working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at Yankwich.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Walter Scheidel is a historian. He's got a new book out. Its copyright is 2017. But by the time we got our copy, which was just a few weeks ago, the first line was already out of date. It said that the richest 62 people in the world have the same wealth as the bottom half of the world. That's 3.5 billion people. Now those numbers are wrong. The richest eight, eight people in the world now own as much as the bottom 3.5 billion. Numbers that big make no sense to me. So I did a few calculations and I took a page from the math professor Steven Strogatz, who taught me this technique. If you want to compare eight to 3.5 billion, think of them both as seconds, like seconds in time. Eight seconds goes by in, well, eight seconds. And how long does it take 3.5 billion seconds to go by? More than 112 years. On this week's show, we're talking about inequality and maybe not in ways that you usually hear it discussed. Walter Scheidel, who's a professor at Stanford, argues that fixing this incredible inequality with tax policy or better education or whatever is probably not going to work, at least if history is any guide. It's going to take something a lot uglier. He's the author of The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality. Walter, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So this trend of uh, the rich getting richer apparently seems to just be galloping forward. When you look at the broad sweep of history, is this normal?
1: I've looked at the very broad sweep of history over literally hundreds and thousands of years. Mm. And if you look at it on that scale, you see a very clear pattern, which is for most of the time, inequality was either rising or remained stable at more or less high levels. And what it took to bring it down was a, a series of very violent dislocations, of violent shocks that would really narrow the gap between rich and poor. Those, those shocks used to come in four flavors. I call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse in <laughs> analogy to the four horsemen in, in Revelation of John, not entirely without tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually quite similar because they tended to be pretty terrible events. Uh, there are mass mobilization warfare, if you think of World War One, World War II, transformative revolutions like what happened in Russia or in China in the first half of the 20th century under Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. It's the collapse of states, which is primarily a phenomenon of, of pre-modern history, and very, very severe epidemics that carry off a large chunk of the population, but leave the survivors better off than before.
0: Can you give me an example of a couple of interesting shocks? I mean, maybe not interesting in a good way, but uh, shocks that might deserve sort of focusing on for a minute to explain why they, they change the inequality situation.
1: Right. If you take uh, the United States during World War II, for instance, which is a perfect example, inequality was extremely high in the 1920s. It went down just a little bit during the Depression. But then when the war started, a whole number of things happened all at once. There was mass mobilization. Millions and millions of people were drafted into the military. Uh, tax rates went through the roof. Uh, the top tax in- income tax rate was over 90% for the highest incomes. There was massive government intervention in the economy. Capital was generally devalued. There was a lot of redistribution to workers. The rate of unionization went up very dramatically in this period. All kinds of things came together. In other countries, it was physical destruction of capital as well. And so by the time the dust settled in 1945, we can see in the data uh, inequality in terms of income and wages in particular had gone down very considerably. But that was only step one. Step two was that there are aftershocks. There are the effects. of these dislocations linger on, in this case, for several more decades, because once you have those tax and other policies in place, once you have strong unions, this is going to have an equalizing effect, at least in the medium term. So for about a generation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, most people in the US benefited from uh, these shocks and the policies they had put in place. And it took quite a long time for this effect to wear off. It's not really till the 70s or 80s till we see a reversal In this trend, not just in the US, but in many other Western countries as well.
0: I I was going to ask you about that because I think people do look back at the 50s, 60s, and 70s and think, man, like those were the days. I mean, not everybody thinks this, but you know, some people think. Those were days when it was much easier to get a job if you maybe just had a high school education, but like not just a job, a good job where you felt secure and you, if you had a couple of kids, you could, you know, send them to school and you could get a, a decent house and, and, and what's happened? Like what is, where are those jobs that, that used to exist? But it sounds like what you're saying is, whoa, 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 Th- that was not, that wasn't a normal time. That was a weird time and getting back to it is going to be really hard.
1: That is absolutely true. The French call it the lucky 30 years after the war, where you have very strong economic growth, a great expansion of the middle class coupled with uh, declining inequality, which is not something you ordinarily see in history. These are very, very special circumstances that obtained after the Depression, after World War II, and they really benefited this one generation. And that leads us to say this situation became the reference point for us later today. And now people are looking back saying exactly what you said, right? Why aren't things anymore the way they used to be?
0: you've talked about a few reasons that money can get redistributed, a few ways and sort of shocks that can allow that to happen. Now, obviously, a pandemic is a pandemic and is presumably not created by inequality. And war is often not created by inequality, although it sometimes is. Give me an example or a couple of examples of situations in history where inequality itself led to the violence that would then correct the inequality.
1: That is a very common question that I often get because my thesis is that certain types of violence mitigate inequality. And so the question is, does it work the other way around? The short answer is there doesn't seem to be a systematic pattern in a way.
0: You mean that like if things are very unequal, people are driven to, you know, cut the rich down to size kind of thing?
1: That is exactly true because there are plenty of examples both in history and in contemporary societies where societies are highly unequal and outcomes are very different. So for instance, if you think of Latin America, Uh, today or in the last few decades, levels of inequality have been high, extremely high, even by U.S. standards for a very long time. There are very, very few violent um, outbreaks or revolutions, Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, you name it. They're far in between. And there are a number of reasons for that because the U.S. was trying to contain this. But by and large, there is no uniform outcome. If you go back 200 years in history, look at the French Revolution, right? You think of Louis XVI and Versailles and Marie Antoinette and all the rest of it. There's extraordinary extraordinary inequality in France. And so you could say, well, of course they would have a revolution. But there are many other countries in Europe at the same time, England, Spain, the Netherlands, Italy, they're just as unequal and there is no revolution. At the same time, the British colonies in North America at the time were far less unequal than European countries, and yet there's the war of independence. So that doesn't seem to be a meaningful systematic relationship between high inequality on the one hand and some kind of war or revolution on the other. I should add, though, that this hasn't really been properly systematically studied. So there's still a lot of work to be done by historians and by social scientists.
0: So basically, inequality could last in a society from a- long time without anybody being driven to, you know, execute the Tsar or have a communist revolution or whatever.
1: That seems to be the case. In fact, if you look at the big communist revolutions, neither Russia nor China were particularly unequal by hmm. global standards at the time hmm. when those revolutions occurred, which is not what Marx would have expected.
0: Hmm. So if violence doesn't occur, a society is really unequal, there's no violence to sort of correct or change that what happens does it keep getting more and more unequal or does it kind of like stabilize in its unequalness and it just sort of presses on
1: If you look, say, at the 19th century in Europe, which is a period of extensive stability, what happens is basically what it just described. There is a mild, gradual increase in inequality, but effectively at some point you reach a plateau where inequality can't really rise any further. And the same has been observed in many Latin American countries like Brazil, for instance. So there is certainly potential, if you just look at history, there's clear potential for very high levels of inequality to be maintained for generations or if you go farther back in the past for hundreds of years. Now, that doesn't mean that's still the same today because a whole lot has changed in the 20th century. It may well be that in a modern economy, under social democracy, the various variables that feed into it have changed. But as far as history can tell us anything, it shows that high inequality is certainly sustainable in the long run.
0: If you got to run the world for a little while, (laughs) is there anything you think you could do to lessen inequality. Or do you think, you know what? It's not as big a deal as people think it is. Like there's a lot of concern and hand-wringing about it, but may- maybe it, it it isn't as much of a detriment to our lives as we worry that it is.
1: I think most people agree that it is really poverty that's the most critical issue.
0: Okay. So we're not, we shouldn't be worried that, you know, a rich person has a lot of money. We should be worried that a poor person doesn't have anything.
1: Well, we should probably be worried about our very stark inequalities, uh-huh. but we should be worried even more about poverty, right? Okay. If people are deprived of very basic means of living, that is really very dire and critical. And here, the trend's actually quite positive, not necessarily just in the US, but worldwide. So if you take China, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of dire poverty, and at the same time, inequality has doubled. Now if you were to ask the people who have been lifted out of poverty, what would you rather have? Well, they would probably rather rather not be poor anymore than have more equality. There was great equality under Mao when everybody was equally poor, but that's not a very desirable state of affairs either. At the same time, it's not just about money, right? There are ethical issues, moral issues, issues of basic fairness. You can ask, is it feasible in an ostensibly democratic society to have these very stark inequalities? That's certainly something to be taken seriously, but it's probably not as pressing a concern as poverty as such.
0: To go back to your theory of like that, that violence helps to create, a, in some ways, a more equal playing field, what aspect of violence, or we could expand it to, you know, plagues, these really just terrible things that happen, wars and, and, and sicknesses, what, what is it about those things that makes a society more equal?
1: Well, they tend to work in different ways. So I already talked about the world wars where you have fiscal measures, redistribution, any number of things. In a revolution, in a communist revolution, it's pretty straightforward, right? The revolutionaries go out, they expropriate, often kill the rich, they redistribute property, they collectivize uh, property, land, industry, and so on. They plan the economy, they set wages and prices. You asked me before if I was the ruler of the world. Well, if I was some kind of super Stalin, that would ensure worldwide equality. It would be a very undesirable outcome, but it's the way it could be done. Right. State collapse uh, used to work because the rich are closely affiliated with uh, the people in charge of the state. Well, it hasn't really changed all that much, as we can tell in the U.S. today, but it was even more so in the past. And so when a state goes down, everybody suffers but the rich suffer more proportionately because they simply have more to lose. And so for purely statistical reasons, there is an equalizing effect. The the plagues, well, this is something that happened mostly in agrarian societies where if you kill off, let's say, a third of the workforce, but the physical infrastructure remains unharmed, that is going to increase the price of labor, wages, and it's going to make things like land and capital less valuable. And so for that reason alone, the gap between rich and poor is going to narrow quite a bit. That wouldn't really necessarily happen in the world today. It might not work the same way in an industrial economy.
0: But that makes sense. I think of like the bubonic plague and that's correct. If, yeah. if everybody needs to eat, and that's, that's a constant, um, and all of a sudden there are a lot fewer farmers out there, it becomes very valuable to be a farmer.
1: That's exactly true. And you can see in those cases where the rich and powerful try to stem the tide and force people to work for lower ma- wages. But eventually, it's such a pervasive upheaval right. that our market forces eventually assert themselves and people have to be better paid. But then, of course, over time, the population grows back. Eventually, there are as many people as there were before and wages go down to where they used to be and the value of capital goes up again.
0: What do you say to critics who say there's got to be another way to correct tremendous inequality, some policy prescription, besides, you know, having a society collapse or having, right, having a communist revolution or having a bunch of people killed off by the plague? Do you think there's no other lever of uh, changing things?
1: I say to the critics, I hope you're right, right? That's my most (laughs) profound hope. All I can do as a historian, (laughs) all I can do as a historian is to lay out, this is what history shows us. History does not, strictly speaking, predict the future. Change is absolutely possible and desirable in this particular case. What history does show, however, and here I would stick to my guns, is it gives us a sense of which things are difficult or easy to accomplish. And here the lesson is very clear it is extremely, maybe not impossible, but very, very difficult to reduce inequality in a peaceful way. That much is clear, and that should really enter our thinking into what kind of policies to push for and how to implement them. It's not as easy as some people sometimes make it out to be, saying, Mm -hmm. well, if only we elected the right uh, government, if only we did this, if only we did that, that. It seems to be uh, much more difficult than many policy advocates seem to appreciate.
0: Walter Scheidel is a professor at Stanford. He's the author of The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Walter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. One other interesting tidbit from Walter Scheidel. He says that societies that are more equal than America, so think about Scandinavian countries, for example, are not necessarily places with less income inequality. They actually haven't been able to make much headway on that. They're places with a lot more will to redistribute. We're gonna have more about the history of inequality and how it has affected different nations on our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through ConnectInvest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1.